You're listening to Reality Check, Sci-Fi London's regular podcast about science fiction in various media. I'm Alex Fitch, and in this episode I'm looking at activities that science fiction and fantasy fans might like to go to this weekend. Later in the show, I'll be talking to Chris Swanton, the director of a new adaptation of Franz Kafka's The Metamorphosis, which is screening on Sunday at 6pm at this weekend's Sci-Fi London East Film Festival in Stratford in East London. Before that, I'm talking to Korean comic book, or manhwa, creator Minwoo Hyung, best known for his vampire western Priest, which was adapted as a cyberpunk sci-fi film last year, starring Paul Bettany and Maggie Q. Minwoo is part of an exhibition called Manhwa, Korean Painting and Story, at the Korean Cultural Centre, Number 1 The Strand, in central London, just off Trafalgar Square. The art that he's exhibiting at the Cultural Centre is a quartet of baseball bats inscribed with images of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, alongside more traditional manhwa art from recent Korean comics. You're best known in this country for the manhwa priest, and you mix Christian mythology with the idea of the Western, of sort of classical spaghetti Western imagery. Where did the idea for combining those two elements come from? I wouldn't say I'm the pioneer of this genre because uh, my favorite movies are not the mainstream but more minor. We call it B genre. B movies. B movies, yeah. So in those movies, uh, I could find a lot of that aspect. Not, it's not the major thing in the movie, but you can see some details are uh, mixed up like in that way. So I wanted to make those two things as a major thing in my arts. So I wanted to make sure that this, I want to combine two different things and make it as a subject of my art. Why do you think Priest was such a success? It obviously, there was something about it that really captured people's imagination. Do you think that perhaps Christian mythology hadn't been developed for a while in comics or perhaps Westerns hadn't appeared in comics for a while either? Western, the Christian mythology, the horror, it's already well known in public. Those two genres, people are very already used to it. I think because I added Korean atmosphere, something very sad and some some atmosphere that only only Korean can create, I mm. added onto these two genres. That's why people like it. Mm. And then I guess another genre was added to the mix when it was adapted as a movie, that it became science fiction as well as a Western. Was that an addition that you didn't mind them adding to your work, or were you surprised that that was the direction they took? Mm. 
I would prefer to have movie exactly same as my work, but you know I'm a not very well known artist to the U.S.,、yeah. so it's more like for the directors and the people who's making movies. Probably they have to think a lot of different things that I don't really know about the industry, and also it could be very risky for them just to make, just to follow my direction、mm. about like creating a movie. So I understand how it works. So. But I still prefer、uh, to have my work exactly the same as,、uh, yeah, as to be made.、Yeah. Mm. I believe your first manoir was about a, a judo king. That sort of subject of martial arts. Did you choose that subject because perhaps it was a popular genre, or was it a subject that was close to your heart? That 당시에는 만화를 시작을 해야 되는데 이렇게 제가 많이 아는 게 없었어. When I first started、uh, my career, I was probably just made my debut, so I wasn't well-known artist at all. So the the person who asked me to draw something, he said, just try to do what you are already good at it, not you want to do. And judo was the thing that I know very well because I used to do the martial art for a long time. So that's why I start I get to them and started drawing about judo. Have you continued to use the same sort of tools to make your manoir, in terms of the pens and the paper that you use, or have you moved to digital over the years? 저는 되도록이면 마지막까지 그 올드 스쿨을 추가하려고 그래요. 그런데 제가 할수 있는 데까지 버티다가. I want to remain the old school style <laughs> artist as long as I can. Of course, if the system. Has to be changed. I will change. I will change my style if they cannot really take my work in that way. But as long as I can work in my old school style,、mm. I'll probably gonna do it until the end. Okay.、Mm. <laughs> Manwa certainly the English translations we get in this country. It's quite a small format.、Um, is that the same as it is in Korea? And the size of your original artwork is that much bigger than the pages that it's reproduced on? 한국에서는 Oh, 그렇죠 거의 뭐 똑같죠 사이즈가. It's almost the same. Okay. 그렇죠 원 아니 원작에서는 그보다 조금 큰데 뭐 거의 비슷해요. It's a little bigger, but it's almost the same. Hmm. In 2005, an art book was brought out about your work, Justice and Mercy. Is that a collection of pieces that were originally created for manoir, or is it across the board various concept art for for movies and games? Or is it just things that have been extrapolated from comics? 질문이 그 Justice and Mercy 뭐아그 책이 원래는 저는 책이 나오는 걸 반대했는데. I was not very happy about having it as a book. 이게 왜냐면 그 잡지사 사람이 와서 제가 이렇게 개인적으로 그려놓은 것들. So I think it was the collection that I personally had. Collection book이나 이런 화보집은 제가 어느 정도 좀. And the magazine person came to me and asked, "Oh, how about having a collection book and our art book?" And I thought, "Oh, I'm not very mature as a comic artist to have an art book," but they, I didn't really expect them to ask me in that way. But they asked, so I, and it was just like a collection of my personal work, the cover work that I did, and yeah, it was a collab collection of mine.、Hmm. Because I believe that you're also an art tutor as well as being a professional cartoonist. So, do you think,、uh, at the very least, having a collection of your work published like this perhaps might help your students to understand your process? 그거는 
아니고요. 그 제가 그린 그림을 가지고. I understand students all have uh, are all are interested in different genres, not particularly mine or mm. someone else. So, uh, I don't I don't think it makes sense to have my work as something to look at because mm. I would like them to enjoy my work if. Uh, if I am their favorite artist, but I understand that they have different direction, so, and they don't have to follow what teachers doing, especially in artwork-wise. So, I think if they like, it's good. But if they don't, or if they, but it's not the thing that they have to follow. Mm. The kind of art classes that you give are they uh, general drawing classes for art students, or are they actually designed for people to break into the manhwa industry? 적인 수업은 드로잉 수업인데 만화 산업계에 대한 이야기보다는 Basically I do a lot of drawing classes but it's I don't I don't I'm not helping them to get into the industry but I help them to enjoy being a creative artist um, I try to do a lot of like storytelling I do tell them about fictions novel and and about of course manhwa and I really try to uh, make my class be fun and therefore they can enjoy. Mm. In terms of the people who influence you, who inspires you to make your work, whether it's other people working in manhwa or fine art or literature? I was mainly influenced by movies, especially Clive Barker. Clive Barker, his fictions, his video clips. Uh, I was influenced by that a lot. And Sergio Leone. Sergio Leone. <laughs> and his movie influenced me a lot as well. And as well, of course, B movie. <laughs> B movies. Mm. Um, yeah. Then, then any other mono artists. Mm. Your new manoir is called Ghostface. What's the subject of it? It's a combination of Korean myth action. and action genre. And I try not to make it as serious. That's Chris. It's more like fun. People fight and they die like in, the, in this kind of thing. Hmm. What sort of Korean myths that perhaps people in the West don't know much about? <laughs> I don't know what to. I don't know what to answer. 신화라기보다는 좀 옛날 얘긴데 그 섬이 있는데. It's more like an old story. There is an island called Sodo, and it's an island. And when people plea, when people, when guilty people, like when they kill people or when they make some crime, when they get into the island, they are safe. It's like a safe heaven or something. Hmm. But if they come out from the island, they will be charged. Mm -hmm. So they have to stay in the island to be safe. So I, that was that was the motive from of my art. You've been in London the last couple of days because the Korean Cultural Centre has an exhibition of modern manhwa artists. And the piece that you have in the exhibition is a collection of baseball bats with the four horsemen of the apocalypse being depicted on them. How did that piece come about? Uh, so this is my, uh, this is the genre that I particularly fancy, especially the four horsemen in the Bible, the last chapter of the Bible. Uh, that's part, uh, that's a big interest of mine. I'm, I'm very interested about it, and I 
sometimes draw pictures and a baseball bat. Mm. So I kind of mixed all my interests together and made all the pieces. Mm. The introduction that was given at the Cultural Center last night spoke about how Korean manhwa has a closer relationship to fine art in Korea than perhaps comics do in other countries. Making um, a piece of art like this, does this reflect your interest in perhaps elevating manhwa to something that's exhibited in galleries? For me, fine arts is not my favorite. I don't really say it's my favorite genre. But I, when I go to galleries and look around, I see a lot of good pieces and I like some of them. But I don't really have a particular one artist that I really, really like. So that's why my interest is more broad. And I, I kind of think I got influenced by fine arts, but not particularly for one artist, but more in general. Mm. On the baseball bats, rather than famine, you've chosen conquest as one of the four horsemen. Is that because of a different translation of the Bible or because you wanted to change the interpretation of it? Those are the people in the Bible, the characters are already in the Bible, and my favorite is Revelation. And the image in, the, in Revelation chapter is more like broad and it's not very detailed, it's more like a symbol and images. So I wanted to make it specific through my art. And this exhibition that's showing at Coco in London is touring the world. What different reactions have you had so far from people in different countries um, seeing your work displayed, perhaps in this form for the first time? The previous exhibition was in China, and I don't think it's their favorite. I don't think it's that much appreciated because Chinese people are very used to have a uh, have a painting on a paper. Mm -hmm. So I don't really know about how they think of it. But I think in US and Europe, they like unique arts. Mm. And especially in US, there's something about baseball in their mm. culture. So I think they really like it. They, it's going to be the thing that they like. And But when I create some arts, I don't really think what public's going to think about my work. So I don't really think about like the public's opinion when mm. I created things. Thank you very much. Minwoo Hyung's Manhwa Priest is available in 16 volumes from Tokyo Pop, alongside the compilation comic Apple, which he's featured in alongside other Korean creators. The Manhwa Korean Stories and Pictures exhibition is being exhibited at Koka, the Korean Cultural Centre at number one The Strand, Central London, until the 21st of November. And the film adaptation of Priest is available now on 3D Blu-ray and DVD. For more information about the exhibition, please go to manwa101.com. That's M-A-N-W-H-A-101.com. Fans of science fiction and fantasy movies will hopefully know by now that the Sci-Fi London Oktoberfest is a regular feature of London's autumnal programming. However, this year, the Mini Film Festival, a spin-off from the main Sci-Fi London Festival in May, is taking place a month later and has moved from central London to Stratford and is suitably themed around the subject of post-apocalyptics.
alongside new films by David Cronenberg's son Brandon Cronenberg and Sci-Fi London regular Corey Maccabee, and the ever-popular all-night MST3K and anime screenings, this year's Autumn Sci-Fi London Festival is featuring a new live-action adaptation of Franz Kafka's novel The Metamorphosis by debut director Chris Swanton, who is best known by genre fans for editing the BBC's infamous broadcast Ghostwatch. I'm talking to director Chris Swanton about his debut feature film, The Metamorphosis. You've worked as an editor for many years, but this is your directorial debut. How did the situation come about that A, you were directing your first film, and B, that it was an adaptation of one of Kafka's most difficult works? Uh, My previous life was uh, as an academic. I was a a teacher and I worked at a German university for three years and I also worked at English universities. And one of my pet subjects was Kafka. I'm not a Kafka expert, but I did take very much to this story, Metamorphosis. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. And it kind of blew me away when I was quite young, like about 20 or something like that. So it's been with me for many, many years. And uh, I've always wanted to make a film of it, or at least I should say I wanted to see a film of it made. Mm. Uh, And I was always hoping that somebody with great expertise and knowledge would make it. And when nobody did, I know that a couple of people had considered it, i.e. David Lynch was one. Mm. And I thought what a brilliant film he would have made of it. And uh, I was very disappointed that he abandoned the project. But anyway, I thought, as my swan song really, and my sort of parting shot to the industry, I would... Mm. I couldn't, I thought, I just can't not do it. I have to do it. If nobody else can do it. And I, I tried, uh, but this, is my, this was my third attempt. And my first two attempts were to get other people to make it. Uh, I tried the BBC, for example, and other companies. And this was kind of quite a few years back. Then there was a gap. And then another few years after that, I tried again. And then another few years elapsed and nothing happened. So um, I decided, well, I'll, I'll do it. So because I'd worked for the BBC for quite a long time, I knew quite a lot of people in the BBC who I thought I could pull in on the project. And sure enough, you know, they, when I showed them the, the script and the idea and everything, people I'd known there, they, they said, yeah, OK, we'll, we'll come on board. But we had to do it at a very quiet time of year. We had to shoot it in January and February. When, they, when it was a quiet time for everybody, so then they, they were available. Mm. And they all, they were very, very good. Everybody pulled together and tried really, really hard. But I think it was more difficult. Um, the concept of it was more difficult than I'd imagined. That was my problem. I thought that I was very confident about it. I thought, oh, yeah, I, I can see this. this is, I can visualise how this is going to be. But when you actually put it together mm. and you actually watch it, then you realise how difficult it is, how difficult it is to get this insect across, to get the sympathy for him, to show the passage of what's happening to him, how he's slowly starving to death for the right kind of food and how he suffers emotionally and how they treat him, and etc. And I, I found that a real hurdle to surmount and get across to an audience. And that's my main worry now is, you know, does it, does it, will it have a, a, the, the right effect on audience? Will they feel pity for... Gregor Samsa um, and so we've, we've made great emphasis on his death and things like put great emphasis on his death things like that to make sure people understood that it was his story and, and what had happened to him but also there's the reverse process with the family they go from being an indolent uh, trio to uh, becoming strong again and going out into the world and coping yeah. so his demise produ- releases them to a, a better life mm. 
You said that you'd uh, taught in Germany. Does that mean German's your second language? And if so, did that make it a lot easier to do an adaptation because apparently the book is notoriously hard to translate? Um, I, I was fluent in German. Um, I would say I'd struggle now, but I was at the time fluent in German when I worked there. Um, and yes, and I did... I did the adaptation from the original German. I didn't use a translation, though I have used other translations to compare. You know, various bits of the translation are quite difficult, but the original text, um, there are certain words that Kafka plays with that you cannot find equivalents for in English. And so it was fortunate for me that I could actually read those in the original and I could understand what he meant. And I kind of thought that I understood Kafka but that's what everybody thinks everybody thinks they understand it or at least they understand they're the, uh, they also think that they're the only ones who understand it you know everybody has this kind of opinion about oh yeah I, I, I get it I get it and nobody else gets it just me you know that kind of thing and I fell for that as well I just thought yeah I, yeah, I get this I think I understand <laughs> Kafka I understand this story uh, and it's it's not possible, really, to completely understand it because it's so full of different meanings. It's so multi-layered, you know. And I've read it countless times, and I can honestly say that every time I've read it, I find something new in it that I never noticed before. It took me a long time to discover it's not actually about a Jewish family at all. It's about a Catholic family. And that came as a big, big surprise. I've been reading it for years and thinking, yeah. And then suddenly I noticed, no, there's nothing about Judaism in it, nothing at all. It's all based on... on Catholicism and oh. I thought God, everybody assumes it's about yeah. a Jewish family don't they you know well I mean I, I don't know a great deal about uh, the book but, but in re- researching this interview before I came to meet you um, I read that one of the interpretations of the words that's used in the first sentence that is variously translated as insect and vermin and in fact it's only an encounter with a cleaning lady towards the end of the book that reveals uh, Gregor as being a, a giant beetle um, people have said that the reason that Kafka chooses the word vermin in the first sentence is because that has Jewish connotations at the time that he was writing it. Oh, that's interesting. I I hadn't (laughs) realised that at all. Um, You're absolutely right. It does mean uh, unkatsifa, the word das unkatsifa, which you're referring to, Hmm. is a word that's normally used in the plural, and it's kind of always, the connotation always is an infestation, um, as with rats or anything like that. Um, It seems to me that that's that's possibly pushing it a bit far because he it's a lot of people have thought that he anticipated the rise of Nazism mm. and all the rest of it I personally don't think he was at all political and I don't think that's intentional in any way but that mm. doesn't matter I mean the point is that if it means that to people that's that's great but mm. it, you think of those Goebbels films the black and white propaganda films with all the rats come scurrying mm. around mm. And, and being compared to Jewish people and maybe that's what you're referring to but I think that's probably a bit of a stretch to say that that was in his mind. I mean, perhaps that's one of the strengths of Kafka, that his work can be extrapolated um, to various uh, time periods in order to bring out meanings that have parallels with current political situations, even if that wasn't what he's intending himself. Yes, uh, and I think the, the whole point about Kafka is that he was so subjective, it's so intensely subjective that it can be interpreted by other people very subjectively. So you can see anything you want in it. You really can see uh, any, any number of things in it. And it, it's quite inexhaustible, the number of interpreta- interpretations that can be read into it. Mm. Uh, and I, I think I said in a, 
one of the little blurbs I'd written for the for our website that he was adopted as the spokesman uh, and representative of many many minority groups like the mm. Freudians and the, and the Expressionists etc etc. But I don't think there was any intention in his own mind of anything else but describing his own suffering, his own self-disgust and his own feeling of uh, his incapability of, com- of, of, of actually coping with the expectations of his father. I think his father is, and it's known to be, you know, his father was a massive, massive influence on his writing. And I think his father is a figure that is greatly exaggerated by Kafka. I don't think he was anything like as bad as he as Kafka makes out. But it is. I, I read somewhere, and I can't actually, I can't actually pinpoint who said this. But it is. It has been said that his father referred to him as a cockroach or a bug or a vermin, and that this is why he depicts himself as that. But I mean, in general, even if that's not true. It is an expression of his own disgust at himself. You know, this, as we were talking about before, das Ungeziefer, this infestation, this kind of horrible thing, you know, and it, it's helpless and it's hideous and it's horrible. Mm. And the, one of the main points is that it's helpless. He can't do anything anymore. And he's saying to people, he's saying to his family, look, I've been, co- I've been, I've been fending for you for five years, getting up every morning at like four o'clock, getting on that five o'clock train. I've mm. worked my guts out for you. Now I can't do it anymore. I am an insect. I am helpless. I have tiny, funny little legs. I have no teeth. I can't eat properly. I can't do anything. You know, are you going to look after me now? You know, are you going to return the favour? And of course, they don't. <laughs> so that's it. But that's how I read it anyway. Mm. I read that it is a kind of a psychological breakdown, mm. and he's putting up this defence, this literal shell. You know, he puts up this shell to protect himself. Nobody can get me. But of course, his father then penetrates his shell with this hard, rock-hard apple. And that's the start of his death, really. You know, from, that's a fatal inju- injury. And that com- combined with the fact that he can't, that they can't provide him with the right sort of nourishment. They just give him scraps all the time and think that he's, he's enjoying it. Or, or that they don't understand why he doesn't eat anything, you know, and he's got no appetite for anything because they're just not giving him what he wants, which is kind of love and mm. fulfillment. And, and that's when, when he hears the music, you know, in the film, he's lured out by the music because mm. that's to him something artistic, something spiritual mm. that he's been craving and then he's been lacking. And so um, I think, I think again that all these all these meanings, you know, this is my interpretation, but it doesn't have to be anybody else's. Mm. And I was trying in the film to be totally objective and not put an interpretation on it. I was trying to just give the book mm. there on the on the screen to people uh, to make what they wanted of it. But you can't help it. Whatever you think creeps into it, doesn't it? Mm. You know, you, you try and be as objective as possible. But I know that in the back of my mind that that's what this version is saying mm. it's saying that here's a guy with a breakdown you know and, and, and this bug symbolises that breakdown and this is how his family treat him mm. and, and it's a film about a reaction to suffering really you know mm. and being different and being uh, some, somebody who is a burden to, yeah. to, your, to the family mm. but, but at the same time I mean I mentioned the political aspects of Kafka and how a lot of people see symbolism of surveillance culture and you know 
political oppression in his books. But one thing, I think most people only know the metamorphosis for its opening sentence. One morning, Gregor Samsa awoke from troubled dreams to find that he had been transformed into a giant insect. And one thing I wasn't expecting, certainly when I watched the film, was that so much of it would actually be quite funny. Are the comedic elements obvious in the novel, or is it something that you teased out in your adaptation? Um, I think that it's quite well known, in fact, that he um, wanted it to be amusing. He wanted... Um, I've also, I think, written this in the blurb, so I hope I'm not repeating myself, but he was a huge fan of Charles Dickens. He was a huge mm. fan of Jewish theatre, and Jewish theatre is what gave rise to like people like the Marx Brothers, a very white-faced, you know, and all this kind of mm. over, very over-the-top theatricality. Uh, and um, also he, the emerging art of the silent movie had a great impact on him. And I think all those elements are in the story. And when he read it aloud to his friends for the first time, it is reported that they laughed uproariously and he was delighted with this. You know, he thought, this is exactly the reaction I want, particularly the supervisor, because you know, he's always setting figures of authority up. Mm. and then kind of debunking them, then exploding mm. the myth of their superiority. And the same thing with the, with the lodgers. They're kind of strange people, but underneath it, they appear as figures of being very meticulous and very clean, mm. and they want everything their own way. But in the end, there's just a little sentence in the book that says, a little phrase that says, and in the morning light, this is when he's lying there dead, you just see the frayed... Uh, elbows of their jackets, you know, which is kind of telling us, actually, they're just vagabonds, really. Mm. They're just taking the mick, you know. They're mm. just trying to trying to get a, a place to live for nothing. And, mm. and, and again, they're these figures that you think are something that they're not, you know. Mm. And so we try to do very similar things with the lodgers. And, mm. of course, that's a matter of taste as well. We, we, they were tr we tr attempted to make them rather like, you know, the Marx Brothers and mm. this kind of thing. And even the, little, the, the central one, the first lodger, as he is, the one who everybody else, the other two follow, he even looks a little bit like Charlie <laughs> Chaplin, you know, so that's all kind of like our, our uh, approach to, mm. some people may hate all that, but <laughs> that's what I thought anyway. <laughs> and Well, you've spoken about um, the influence of Jewish comedy on yeah. Kafka, and you've cast uh, a great uh, comic actress, Jewish comic actress, in the role of Gregor's mother. How was uh, the casting of uh, Robert Pugh and Maureen Lippmann as the parents? Well, I actually chose um, Maureen Lippmann and Robert Pugh, or at least when I said chose them, I approached them, you know, mm. and, I, and I wasn't sure if they'd actually do it, of course. But they're based very much on the, on the photographs I had of the real parents. Ah. They actually look huh. very similar to uh, Kafka's mother and Kafka's father. And again, it's, it's possibly not the right thing to do to go outside the book, you know, and, and search into his life. But I just thought, well, I've got these photographs. That's his sister looked like that, his father looked like that, his mother looked like that. There's Maureen Lippmann, there's Robert Pugh, and I, I knew Robert Pugh from before because I edited a film that he was in for the BBC. Mm. Um, and so I just chanced my arm, really, and I wrote to, Paul, uh, to uh, Maureen Lippmann's agent, and um, she eventually accepted it. And I just thought, my God, when, when she's on board, then other people are going to mm. come on board. And she was the catalyst, really. I her a lot, you know, I'm indebted to her for, for being part of it because... I think without her, other people might not have agreed to, to be in the film. Mm. But anyway, she did, and I, I, I was delighted with her. I thought she was great. Mm. And both um, Robert and Maureen have been in episodes of Doctor Who since it came back in the new millennium. Did that make it easier for them to appear in a production that relied heavily on CGI for the central character? Um, 
I don't. Robert Pugh had already done Doctor Who. Who mm. I don't know that Maureen Lipman had done at the time, but they were very experienced actors, as you know. Yeah. And they were able to work without anything to act to. They were mm. just able to do it because, yeah. because of their experience. Uh, and they, they, even I think, I don't think any member of the cast hadn't had some experience of acting to a tennis ball on a stick, you know, <laughs> which is what we have to That's the way it is. Yeah. Um, and, and I was astonished, actually. I used to watch them think, oh, my God, how do you do that? I, can you imagine that that's an insect there and react like that? It's great. So, um, yeah, but, but they, they brought, all brought their experience to it of those kind of things. Uh, the only one who hadn't ever done anything like that was me, and I'd never even edited a film with CGI, so I had mm. no experience of how to do it at all. And, but the CGI supervisor, um, Will Rockle, was there throughout. He was there on set every day telling us you know, how we could do this, how we could do that, mm. where did we need green screen, wh- wh- what, what could he paint out afterwards, how, how could he put the insect in, and there are various things you have to remember, like the insect can never be behind people, he mm. has to always be in front of them, because you overlay the insect onto the picture. So a lot of the shots I had in my head, I, did, I actually had to abandon, because I, I, we couldn't physically do them. Well, you could, but it is a hugely expensive because you have to trace around yeah. all the people, you know, and put the thing to get the, 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 the CGI behind people on the set. Mm. And so um, we, we just changed the shots around. And in some ways, I'm quite disappointed about a couple. I had envisaged that the supervisor, when he's fleeing, would be pursued by this insect behind him, you know, with this big... But we just didn't risk it. We just thought it's going to be too expensive. So we just shot it a different way, really, mm. very simple. Way. But the whole style of it is very theatrical intentionally. And again, it's a matter of taste, you know, but that's the way I saw the book as being written mm. in a very theatrical, very... Um, Kaffer delights in the description, in the verbal. In, he's, he's, he's a great... He's a great wordsmith. He loves using words. He loves describing it. You can tell the enjoyment he gets from the way he uses adjectives and these long, con- convoluted sentences and things like that. Uh, and I just thought, this is, this, is, this is the style that is appropriate to the book. Mm. And I think that given... Uh, that there are other ways, obviously. You could make it much more um, effects-driven. Mm. But my policy was not to make it an FX film at all. Mm. It was just, he, he's a bug and he's a, a character in the film. He's mm. not an effect, you know. That w- I was try- hoping people would forget that immediately, yeah. what they'd seen him, and that he was just, he's just like a member of the family. Mm. So it, it was intentionally not too effectsy. Mm. Well, I suppose as a first-time director, the fact that it is quite theatrical and it does mainly take place in like three rooms, that must make it a lot easier because you don't have to think of various sets and various locations. You can concentrate far more on the performances. It is, but it's also very worrying because you think, God, we're in this for the whole film. We're in <laughs> this one or two rooms, basically. How do I make this interesting? Is it going to be interesting? Is it going to bore people rigid? You know, do we need to get out and about? Should we do some backstory? Should we do any or any of that stuff? And in the end, well, it's not the book. You know, again, you know, I was saying to you before, it's it's once you set down set out along the road to be very accurate and very faithful to the book, mm. then you kind of are very restricted as well. And I just thought, no, I can't. I really can't go outside this fact. The whole point is that it's six months of claustrophobia mm. from the time he changes to the time he dies is approximately yeah. approximately six months. And you think, now if I explode that, if I go outside it, then I'm cheating. You know, mm. I'm not. I'm not giving the book. I'm not giving. I'm not making the film as the book is. Mm. So that's why we didn't. Because there, there were suggestions that we should see 
as a kind of title sequence, uh, Gregor making, as a human being, making uh, the picture frame. His mother makes a lot mm. of play about you know, him making this beautiful picture frame in which he's cut out a picture of, um, out of a periodical of this girl in furs, you know, mm. and he's got it as a pin-up on his wall. And I think that there is a temptation to use that as a kind of a title sequence. Mm. But I was a bit afraid of title sequence. I was a bit afraid of it swinging over into kind of like a bigger film than it really mm. was, you know, being a bit pretentious. And in fact, that's the first version before we re-edited it was like that and uh, it had a lot of overlays the dream and all the kind of images he was seeing and when I came back from Montreal we just cut all that out we said no it's it's not right it should be simple and the audience should see that whatever is is happening in his dream they have to create that themselves and in fact we were even thinking do we should we put the dream in at all because really you could open with his with his eye you mm. know, and, and mm. seeing his arm because that's the story but there's such an important three words um, from he woke from tr- fretful or troubled dreams mm. and we thought if, if you don't show that how are people going to know what's caused all this you know mm. so we had to try and put in that kind of pre-sequence pre you know uh, before we come to the to him actually changing to show the process of change mm. So again, it's a question of you know, is it right or is it wrong? I don't know. <laughs> I can't answer that. I just thought I, I, I need to get something of those words because, as you said yourself, it is such a famous opening mm. sense. L- many many people almost know it off by heart. Yeah. And that element, the troubled dreams, was something that seemed to me very important. Mm. So that's why we did that. Eventually, mm. changing. You said you hadn't worked with CGI before. You have worked in the kind of um, black comedy horror genre in the sense that for genre fans, I guess your most famous work outside of this was editing Ghostwatch in the 90s. Um, Did that project or any other project you worked on kind of help develop the mood of this piece? Uh, It didn't. I I loved working on Ghostwatch. I thought it was great and uh, I'm great friends with the director still, um, Leslie Manning. But... it, in itself, it didn't it didn't influence uh, the, the mood of, the, of this of, of metamorphosis. No, mm. but uh, but it and it didn't actually use any. You know, that film uh, Ghostwatch didn't actually use any effects like that, CGI yes. or anything like that. But it set a great mood, as you say, and and it was quite scary. You know, well, I, well, I hope it was anyway. <laughs> uh, it was. I think it's been voted the second most scary movie on TV or something like that in wow. one of these polls. You know, <laughs> one of these hundred best or hundred worst or hundred most scary or something. But I, no, I, I loved Ghostwatch. I thought it was great. It was brilliant fun to work on, mm. and uh, and it had a big ish impact. So uh, mm. no, it was a, that was probably one of the best things I've ever worked on, actually, to be honest. <laughs> And it means that you and Orson Welles have two things in common. You both worked on a broadcast uh, that a lot of people thought was real and caused a little bit of a panic. And then he adapted uh, Kafka's The Trial for film and you've adapted Metamorphosis. Yes, and and his film The Trial I thought was was wonderful. Mm. I think it's really, really good. Um, It's got fantastic mood in it. Uh, uh, I shouldn't be critical of the BBC because, you know, I love the BBC, but their version of the trial I didn't think was that great it was very lavish and it had Carl McLaughlin in it starring mm. as Joseph Kay shot in Prague and all the period stuff all the old trams and everything like that but somehow it didn't have that mood or it didn't evoke that kind of well once Wells has directed something yeah yeah you can't, <laughs> it's very difficult isn't it it's very difficult to match it yeah so 
Anyway, yeah, yeah, no, but, but Orson Welles' version of the trial is brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Mm. Having worked as an editor for many years, you spoke about how you re-edited Metamorphosis after going to Montreal. Does it make it very difficult actually editing your own work because you're so used to doing it to other people that almost your own project is too personal that you can't kind of take a step away from it? Um, well, actually, uh, I'm not the, the, the editor as such. Um, the editor was of someone called Chris Toft, who was an ex-colleague of mine at the BBC, um, and he did most of the groundwork. I have fiddled, and I, I'm, that's one of the problems, is I have too much access to it, and I'm, I'm able to fiddle with it too much. Mm. And, and, the, and the temptation is to keep going and fiddle and fiddle and fiddle, and then eventually you start making it worse rather than better. Mm. But he's always at hand, and I can always ask him, you know, what, what, what should I do now, and does he mind me doing this, does he mind me doing that? But So I, I thought it was a mistake to be... to both adapt it and then direct it and then have a big say on how it was edited. I thought that was just... There's not enough discipline involved. You know, you need a filter system whereby people say, no, no, that's rubbish, you can't have that. You know, that's got to go or that's got to, that'll go to end up on the cutting room floor, etc. You need someone to be objective, very objective, and it's very hard if, you, if you're the person who's actually shot it as well and directed it. So um, he, he is the guy who really... Um, influence how how it was shaped etc etc so and i'm very grateful to him for doing that so having now directed this film which is appealing to literary audiences and showing at a science fiction film festival i guess it means that now should you want to direct another project um it means you have many different genres available to you <laughs> um, I, mm, I don't know i i mean this this at the moment uh, i feel will be the only film i ever make i'll go back okay. to editing i think really this has been a, t- a tough one for me mm. I, I wouldn't readily go down this road again um certainly not under my own steam i wouldn't mm. mind if somebody else offered me a job and, and offered loads of money and stuff to, <laughs> to make the film i mean but uh, it's it's a it's a tough one and I would not recommend it to anybody else mm. you know there's loads of people who've got something in their hearts that they want to make you know mm. and, and I would say be very very careful be very careful how you go out there, how you go about it I think you need to have um, you need to have more finance than we had you need more support than we had really um, it, it, it's not a it's not a it, it's not an industry for one for a one-man band, really. I mean, this wasn't actually a one-man no. band totally, but it did come down to a lot of responsibility on my shoulders, and, and I, I, I began to I began to feel that after a while. I began to think, oh God, this is just uh, it's just too difficult. It's just too, why did I ever start this? You know, you always. I think most people go through that kind of feeling. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm very glad I I was able to have a go at it. That's what I would say. I I don't regret that much. But there have been times when I've woken up in the night in a cold sweat and thought, oh, my God, you know, what have Looked I done? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what have I done? Yeah, yeah. Have I turned into a beetle? Yeah. Cool. Thank you very much. Franz Kafka's The Metamorphosis, directed by Chris Swanton, is screening at Sci-Fi London East at the Stratford Picture House, Theatre Square in Stratford, East London, 6pm on Sunday the 11th of November. The festival started this evening and there are screenings throughout the weekend with full details of the festival's programme at www.scifilondon.com. Reality Check was recorded, edited and introduced by Alex Fitch, is a Panel Borders production 
and you can find all previous episodes at www.scifilondon.com stroke podcast and there'll be a new episode online soon. Thanks for listening.